2: welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Mustful, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Gregory D. Smithers, author of the book, Native Southerners, Indigenous History from Origins to Removal. Greg, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Colin. Dr. Smithers is an American historian with a particular interest in the rich history of the Cherokee people, indigenous history in the Southeast, and environmental history. He received his Ph.D. in history from the University of California, Davis. He has taught in California, Hawaii, Scotland, and Ohio. He currently lives in Richmond, Virginia, where he is a professor of American history and eminent scholar in the College of Humanities and Sciences at Virginia Commonwealth University. Greg, I'd like you to begin uh, by putting some framework into this uh, book. You mentioned diasporic identities. Mm -hmm. Uh, You state... You state that native Southerners forced into exile from their ancestral homelands have grappled with the reality of diaspora and the settler colonial world that surrounds them. What does that mean?
1: Well, that's uh, that's my way of, of trying to get at the complex histories, the very layered histories of indigenous identity that have emerged uh, since European invasions uh, began to impact uh, indigenous societies throughout the Southeast and indeed throughout the Americas uh, from the late 15th century, and then in increasingly accelerated form um, in terms of violence, uh, in terms of uh, the psychological impacts of uh, the imposition of Christianity and other cultural forms on indigenous communities over the course of the 16th, 17th century and beyond, Um, and to try and, and come to some sort of new insights and understandings as to how uh, Native peoples, uh, in my case, particularly from the Southeast, have um, re-articulated, both in word and written form, but in artistic form, uh, through ceremonial forms, uh, their sense of identity and place in the world. Um, And so it's a a complex story that we can spend much of uh, today talking about. Um, that I, I continue to try and grapple with, um, and, and in my discussions with Native Southerners throughout um, the United States and, and beyond uh, today, these are these are questions that they too uh, continue to ask and, and come up with with new and, and creative uh, and innovative answers to that question about about what diaspora means to their collective sense of identity.
2: I I like how you you call it a complex story because uh, it really is uh, a deep, complex story that I I think after reading this book, you really did a good job of organizing it in a way that it can be understood.
1: Well, that was the primary goal of the book was to try and present a very complex history, a dynamic history, a history that's really uh, always on the move. And in fact, I mean, native Southerners their sense of history and collective sense of, of community or kinship, uh, it, it's, it's a story that's very much a, a story of movement, uh, even before Europeans arrived. So I wanted to try and capture that in narrative form and provide readers with uh, an entry point into that story. Uh, Now, one of the reasons that I also wanted to do that was because I had so many people coming up to me after public lectures and my students uh, talking about how they wish they knew more about uh, this particular history, Uh, the history of Native Southerners, both in the Southeast, but also the the story of Native Southerners and the stories that they tell uh, about uh, their own history, their own culture. Uh, their own sense of spirituality and how it changes over time, uh, in, in throughout diaspora as well as a result of colonialism and other uh, forces. And what I've what I've learned from those conversations is people knew very little about that history. Uh, they knew an awful lot about um, the West and Plains tribes. Some of them from their own independent reading. Much of it, sad to say, from uh, Hollywood filmmaking uh, mm-hmm. novels over the years that they might've read. Uh, but the, an understanding of, of native people in the Southeast was, I've discovered over the years, superficial and, and, and a lot of people feel frustrated with that and they want to know more. Um, the information is out there. One of the things I, I think I've done with this book is, is sort of synthesize it and bring it together in, in one, uh, one place for people.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about what you've learned. Uh, the first chapter is talks about origins, and, and you talk a lot about storytelling and appreciating the importance of storytelling. So what does that mean, and, and what did you learn about the origins of Native Southerners?
1: Well, storytelling is absolutely critical to Native history in general, but it's certainly the case also with Native Southern history uh, as well. Um, stories are sort of at the at the foundation of uh, how kinship identities and, and a sense of community is articulated and understood or situated both in the human world but also in the sort of larger a larger epistemological understanding of, of um, uh, Native American people's place uh, in in the universe and so that's why, for instance, origin stories are so very important. Uh, throughout um, Native history, to to understanding a sense of of time and place, um, of, of also trying to un- understand how um, people inducted into um, sort of secrets of uh, Native religions and uh, ceremony can transcend time and place um, through visions and dreams and and so and ceremony and so forth. Um, so all of this is very important in terms of knitting people together, but also in terms of uh, an understanding of, of, of cultural, social, and political identities, and enabling those identities to innovate and adapt over time. Um, I think there's 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 a, a performative element to a lot of this, which is not to diminish the significance of this, but it is to sort of underscore. Um, the innovative and adaptive nature of Native identities in the Southeast uh, that I tried to capture in the initial chapters uh, in the book. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason for that is most of the students that come to me have this vision of Indian history in the Southeast ostensibly being Cherokee history. And it's much, much more than that. It's, it's a much more complex and diverse history than simply Cherokee history in uh, the 1820s and 30s. Indeed, Cherokee history itself is far more complex than many of my students uh, appreciate when they first walk into to my classes. So trying to use storytelling to convey those messages was one of my primary goals um, in, in beginning to frame the book. Uh, and how political identities are, and cultural and social identities, are framed around around story to give meaning to those those layered identities that I, I try to elucidate in the book.
2: You talk a little bit about uh, misinterpretation or misunderstanding, and, and in the book you mention, uh, a, it, it's important to try and disentangle the threads of Native American and Christian culture yep. um, as a major challenge confronting students. Uh, Tell us about that challenge.
1: Yeah, well, that's, again, why storytelling is so important. Uh, And I I sort of preface that in my work and in my teaching uh, with students by having them um, interact directly with uh, Native oral traditions from the very beginning. Um, So that's what they do is they're framing the tensions that emerge between Native worldviews and European worldviews. Um, particularly, various forms of Christianity that Native people were uh, encountering uh, during the early modern centuries and into the 19th and 20th century—they're—they're—they're they're, they're trying to uh, understand those uh, less from the Western Christian perspectives that they might have grown up with in their middle and high school background, and and em- empath- empathizing with Native worldviews and Native religious worldviews. So for, for argument's sake, I, I begin talking to people in my classes and uh, in this particular book by underscoring the, the importance of different types of of origin stories and why those origin narratives are, are very important to understanding communal identities. And there are a number of these uh, that we can talk about that Native Southerners uh, developed, and they're very similar, um, some of these stories in their broad outlines – um, but there are there are several types of stories that are, are worth emphasizing. Um, for instance, there are earth emergence stories um, that talk about native people coming out of a portal um, from a particular place in the ground and this this type of story connects native people uh, to local ecologies and a local environment uh, in ways that was very difficult for Europeans to understand the emotional connection. Um, with those local attachments in the 1500s in and the 1600s. Um, there are other stories, too, that uh, Native people tell about their collective origins. Um, earth diver uh, stories um, are stories that talk about the sort of prim- primordial um, watery earth um, and ancient beings sort of pulling um, the first uh, pieces of the earth, uh, which will become their homelands, a the mud from the bottom of these primordial uh, waters um, that come to ultimately constitute um, uh, Native homelands throughout the Southeast. Um, and then there are other tales, too, that complement and in some cases um, uh, throw up questions about uh, where Native people come from. I mean, deluge stories, for example, uh, migration narrative run through uh, Native storytelling in the Southeast. Um, there are stories of, of human creation that are associated with the sun and the moon. Uh, and perhaps most famously of all, there are corn uh, mother narratives, um, which, again, these sort of corn mother narratives uh, emphasize how communal identities and, and a communal kinship based people are, are tied to um, a local space, uh, local ecologies, uh, and that there are these sort of kinship relationships between both humans and um, natural worlds around them. So all of that is very important to understanding how then Native people might have um, sifted through the messages that they were getting from Christian missionaries, um, from colonial officials, from settlers, from uh, soldiers. Um, And one of the things we find is that, uh, particularly for Christian missionaries, um, they found it very difficult to gain a whole lot of traction – uh, with Native people throughout the Southeast, um, simply because uh, they encountered a, a peoples who had a long history of of asking questions about belief systems and debating and discussing and adapting belief systems uh, to the sort of changing nature of of their local worldview and their local world uh, more generally. Um, interesting. So interesting. So all of this made it very difficult initially for Christianity uh, to gain a whole lot of traction. Um, and indeed, this is something that causes uh, Christian missionaries in the Southeast a good deal of uh, anxiety. Uh, many of them sort of write in their letters and journals about their their belief that, that they're basically failing in their mission uh, of, of converting souls, of converting Indian souls. And this is very important to to if we were to sort of step back and understand this from the Christian missionary perspective for a moment, um, their failure is is incredibly consequential in their mind because what they're doing is they're failing uh, not only to impart um, a sense of sort of the, their understanding of the true religion uh, among native people, uh, but so long as native people remain outside. Uh, the orbit of christianity then then it 's very unlikely in their in their minds that these are people who can ever become civilized and be brought into uh, the body politic of of settler colonial societies uh, and for missionaries that 's something that they consider um, to be a real failing on their part if they can't accomplish that
2: well uh, let 's move beyond the origins and and into chiefdoms. Uh, you you call them complex chiefdoms of highly developed social and political structure. Um, tell us about how they came to be developed.
1: Yeah, so chiefdom societies um, dominate the Southeast and indeed the Ohio and Illinois Valleys um, right, roughly between uh, 700 in the Common Era uh, and about 1600. Uh, so they overlap with the initial invasions of, of Europeans uh, into the Southeast. Uh, there are precursors to these types of societies. Um, Poverty Point, for example, in modern day Louisiana uh, is often pointed to by archaeologists as a sort of precursor to, to the cheapdom societies that begin to proliferate um, throughout the Mississippian world um, after 700 in the Common Era. Uh, There are a number of different types of chiefdom societies that scholars have have pointed to over the years. Um, And I should point out that our understanding of of these societies um, is really a reflection of the value of interdisciplinary scholarship. Um, Our understanding of what life looked like or attempt to understand what life looked like in chiefdom societies uh, is a product of of archaeological investigations, um, of uh, ethno-history, of social and economic uh, history, and of a re-engagement with uh, Native storytelling and, and oral narrative traditions uh, also to piece together what these, these worlds look like. And what we find in piecing those pieces of uh, the puzzle together is that um chiefdom societies range from from very sort of simple rudimentary societies to very complex and paramount chiefdoms so you might have for example a, a simple chiefdom um very small population uh very few mound structures might define this particular uh society uh and there's not the sort of clear Uh, Political and social rankings that you might find among the more complex and paramount chiefdoms. And those latter chiefdoms are characterized by very clear hierarchies, or what seem on the surface to be very clear hierarchies, much larger populations, uh, and a complex of mound structures. Um, that, that, as I mentioned in the book, uh, do very much warrant um, the title of sort of monumental architecture. Um, the mounds are a combination of, of burial mounds uh, and uh, ceremonial mounds, and they structure uh, in the complex and paramount chiefdoms with much larger populations and a and, and clearer sense of social distinction. Um, they're meant to uh provide an architectural uh compass for for social status in in these particular societies uh and also in 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 some ways to demonstrate a connection with uh both this world in which people within the chiefdom society live uh and uh the great spirits um so again it, Important thing here is to underscore the nature of of community that's formed within these chieftain societies, connection to uh, a sort of spiritual sense of the world, um, and and to note that what knits people together in these communities um, is a sense of um, a kinship and protection uh, within uh, the chieftain society. Um, and in terms of that, then, what you have is a segue to understanding how only on the surface are these societies do they look rigid in their uh, social and political structures. Because in truth, as we've dug deeper into the nature of these societies, uh, what we've found is they're again, they're dynamic, they're innovative, and there's this process of fissuring that that occurs um, within many of these societies where segments of a of a complex or uh, paramount society might break away and form uh, their own kinship relations or new kinship relations uh, or attach themselves to another chiefdom society. Um, and this, this cycle tended to occur more commonly than we originally thought when scholars began to, to uh, dig into understanding uh, chiefdom societies and mound building societies throughout the Mississippian world. Uh, and, and one of the things that I point out in the book is that that sense of dynamism and innovation that characterized the chiefdom era, the ability of people to shift between simple and complex and paramount chiefdoms um, that 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 nimbleness enabled native people uh, to ultimately adapt and innovate again when they're confronted with challenges like colonialism.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: Well, let's talk about that. Uh, you mentioned now the, the European invasion uh, a few times. What, what exactly do you mean by the, the European invasion? And, and also, how did that lead to the emergence of what you call coalescent societies?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... European invasion uh, in the Americas and the Caribbean obviously begins in 1492 with Columbus, but then uh, we need to then fast forward a a decade or so into the 16th century and initial Spanish uh, incursions into the Americas. Um, And these included in the first half of the 16th century uh, incursions into what we would understand today as the Southeast. And what the Spanish saw, so people like De Soto saw in the Southeast were, uh, the types of chiefdom societies that had been, uh, flourishing and trading with each other and engaging in, in wars and captive raids and, um, um, you know, different types of cultural and economic exchange for many centuries. Uh, and De Soto and other Spaniards, when they moved through, um, the Southeast, um, they got a glimpse of these societies. Um, They struggled to, in some cases, to understand uh, the full consequential nature of of these societies and what they uh, might mean. Um, One of the things that we see repeatedly, not only in Spanish, but other European accounts, is sort of an attempt to to try and place native uh, cultural and political and social structures into some sort of understandable European framework, um, and this has led to um, sort of a a slight slight distortions over time in the way historians have interpreted uh, native history so that all of that is part of the invasion process uh, and and I, I use the term invasion quite deliberately because what we 're talking about here are European peoples who uh, make these incursions into what are ostensibly sovereign uh, Native communities. Um, there, to, to use that term, um, sovereignty is both to place this history within the contemporary context of understanding uh, Native politics and culture in the 21st century, but to understand that that culture and that politics is connected back to these initial encounters uh, with Spaniards and other Europeans uh, in the 16th century um, to denote, as I mentioned, that these are sovereign communities and Europeans recognize these communities uh, as sovereign, independent, um, and, and and complex communities that, quite frankly, in many cases, um, could have, if they wanted to, uh, push the Europeans back into the ocean um that they didn't is in many cases reflective of uh the nature of native kinship communities that these are communities uh for the most part throughout the southeast that rather than engaging in processes of exclusion much like sort of european uh christian nations uh, engage in these politics of exclusion uh native communities kinship communities Uh, look for ways to incorporate uh, people into their kinship networks and to remind those people who are being incorporated into these networks uh, of their responsibilities, a sort of concept of reciprocity uh, that runs through native politics and culture uh, throughout the Southeast. Mm -hmm. So the whole colonial and invasion process is fraught with this tension between sort of in a European exclusionist worldview and a native, how can we um, sort of impose or engender a sense of
2: reciprocity onto these outsiders hmm. so what uh, what societies did emerge? You said that uh, that the southeast was more than just the Cherokee. Uh, what were some of those um, Can you put a name on some of the societies that emerged
1: yeah sure so so one of the things that we then see coming out of uh, these initial encounters, uh, a combination of things, actually, um, native peoples in, in many of the chiefdom societies throughout the, the Mississippi up into the Ohio and Illinois, they're, they're beginning to, to go through processes of, of change and adaption to, to things like climate change, for example, um, in the fifteenth and sixteenth century, um, they're adapting to to new trade and exchange networks um, and all of this is beginning to take place uh, as European incursions into their homelands are occurring and so we see many of these older chieftain societies that I mentioned earlier um, they begin to sort of uh, dissolve, break up in some cases, some of them like the Timucua in Florida, they sort of try to hold on and retain. Uh, their their chieftain social and political structures, uh, but what we're seeing is a a process that's defined by uh, movement um, movement of native communities and um, the, in some cases um, the remnants of native communities because you f- what we find is particularly along the coastline and, and at those spaces where initial contact with Europeans is most pronounced. Um, those those contact zones are defined by combinations of violence and and death uh, as a result of violence and and, and massacres uh, and the spread of disease and the impact that disease and pathogens had um, on native communities in particular and so that that fractures the ki- the older kinship communities that people had become accustomed to and people migrate the people migrate throughout the southeast. Uh, and they form new kinship communities. And so what we see developing is a couple things then by the the 17th century. Um, People are developing themselves into uh, identities that revolve around towns. Uh, Regional town identities become uh, hugely important. Um, So, for example, you might have a group um, that come to call themselves the Yamacraw, and the Yamacraw become... Um, over the course of the, the 17th and 18th century, um, a group of, of um, uh, Yamacraw and Yamasee people who are part of the Lower Creek uh, Confederacy. Um, uh, you have this occurring in other parts of, of the Southeast as well, where you have basically people who are left refugee as a result of these European invasions, um, finding ways to form new kinship um, relations with people. Uh, and they form the nucleus of the identities that then come to be known as as Chickasaw or Catawba uh or Cherokee as i mentioned earlier uh Choctaw uh, and ultimately uh groups like the Seminole um the Yamasee and so on um so these are these are societies that are forged out of um you know not to overstate the point but out of the furnace of those initial encounters uh with european colonialism um, and so new identities are forming. These are the coalescent societies then that are forming, uh, revolving around town-based societies, um, A sort of a lateral, uh, more inclusive uh, understanding of, of how societies are, are governed and how economic resources are, are shared uh, among uh, kinship members. Uh, and then also new stories are beginning to emerge. Um, so the anthropologist Robbie Ethridge. Noted many years ago now that uh, in many parts of the interior Southeast, um, there are um, uh, parts of that region that are left uh, empty. Fields are left fallow for extended periods of time. Um, and this is part of that process. It's part of, Etheridge calls it the shadow zone. Um, but this is also part of a process in which uh, news stories are beginning to be told about how parts of the Southeast are haunted. Um, And that haunting is a product of this, of this uh, rather rapid transition from chiefdom to coalescent society in in many cases.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned the Indian slave trade and the African slave trade. Uh, What significance did, did those slave trades have in the history of native southerners?
1: Yeah. Hugely important. Um, and there's been a lot of really great scholarship done on this. Um, I mean, Alan Galay sort of got us rethinking about this, um, with his fabulous work, um, uh, that Christina Snyder, um, and there are many others who are working in this, in this field have, have really filled in, um, gaps in our knowledge about the importance of, of captivity and slavery. Um, in the Southeast and throughout um, the Americas. Um, Just briefly, though, I mean, the thing to note about this, and this is something that I've found important to disavow people of uh, in the book, as in my teaching with students, is that there are many different types of slavery. Mm -hmm. And this is something that a lot of people come to books like mine or come to classes like, like I teach and my colleagues teach on the Native South. Um, often with this sort of notion that that um, s- old slavery and captivity looks something like uh, antebellum slavery uh, in the Southeast, and it didn't. And so Native people uh, in the Southeast and throughout Eastern North America more broadly uh, had a tradition of uh, engaging in captive uh, trading and captive raiding. Um, and to place it in sort of very simplistic terms, it, it looks something like this. Um, A group of warriors might, uh, for uh, reasons that are determined among kin members, decide that it's important that we go off on a a captive raid um, to augment the kinship population, um, to target people perhaps with specific skill, people of a certain generation. Um, There might be multiple motives. Um, So they go and they target uh, non-kin communities. Um, Often the men uh, succumb to these captive raids. They were sort of um, um, killed in these raids, um, placed on the blood pole and slowly executed in some cases. Um, And women and children were brought into uh, these communities and they were uh, put to work. They were put to work as captives. Um, But through a series of uh, initiation rituals and ceremonies, and over the course of time, uh, these people would not remain captives or slaves in perpetuity. Uh, Rather, they would be integrated into the kinship community and enjoy the same um, uh, protections and responsibilities, bear the same responsibilities uh, that other members of the kinship community uh, ultimately uh, enjoyed, and so this was this was a way of of keeping balance and harmony within um, demographically within a kinship community. But this began to change when uh, European demand for reliable, tractable, permanent labor force uh, to carve out their vision for uh, colonial societies, whether they be plantation. Uh, colonies or settler societies um, began to really ratchet up pressure on this captive raiding. And the destabilization that that, uh, European invasion caused then led some groups who who fractured off uh, from kin societies to engage in um, uh, captive raids and to sell captives to Europeans. And the Europeans in turn, in many cases, would Uh, transport those Indian slaves uh, into uh, their colonies throughout the Americas and the Caribbean. And this really began to impact uh, and destabilize uh, the the sort of balance of diplomatic relations uh, among Native Southerners over the course of the, the 17th century and into the 18th century. And there are a series of wars Uh, In the early 18th century, um, that serves something as a as a tipping point that remind Europeans uh, that uh, the violence associated with Indian slavery uh, is, while it does provide them with um, captive or enslaved people to to buy and sell, um, it creates an extraordinarily unstable and violent uh um uh, colonial environment in which to carve out their their vision of of settler or plantation uh, society and so increasingly europeans are turning to african and african slave trade um to to sort of um uh, provide the need for tractable permanent labor uh and in time over the course of the 18th century the more prominent and and, and powerful uh, Native Southern nations and and people within those nations, uh, thinking particularly of the the Creek and the Cherokee, the Choctaw and Chickasaw, um, they themselves make a transition from that older form of captivity and adoption uh, to adopting a racial form of enslavement. uh, And they they themselves turn away from, from Indian slaves increasingly and to uh, the type of racialized slavery that defines eighteenth uh, century, the eighteenth century in the Americas.
2: So you talk, uh, you mentioned the plantation owners um, and the settlers that started to move in and, and around these conflicts. Um, and in the book, you call it settler colonialism, and you called it a violent system of invasion. That sought to dispossess native southerners of their land and control to their waterways. Can you explain that a little more?
1: Yeah, one of the things about settler colonialism that I've always found really interesting is just just the word the word that you begin that phrase with "settler." I mean, it's, it sounds um, so inoffensive, and in actuality, what went into making settler-colonialism and settler-colonial societies was, was anything but uh, innocent, passive, um, good-natured. Um, it was, uh, in many cases, an incredibly uh, violent process. Um, it was a process defined by uh, greed in many cases. Um, it was a process defined by uh, subterfuge on the part of, of Europeans, uh, trickery, Um, uh, a good deal of of political and diplomatic uh, bullying uh, on the part of Europeans towards Native people. And that's not to say that Native people themselves were passive. They were far from passive uh, throughout the Southeast. They were actively engaged in trying to shape the course of uh, international diplomacy and indeed warfare uh, throughout the Native South um but j- there's just the structures as other scholars have pointed out over the past uh, generation uh, in really clear detail in their work the structures of settler colonialism are uh, set up and then enacted upon by settlers and and um, military people attached to th- those uh, settler colonial uh, ventures um they're designed to ostensibly eliminate uh, and remove native people um, in one form or another, whether it be through assimilating them into economic systems, or in some cases, sort of physically and culturally into settler colonial society, or pushing them out uh, of of the way of the vision that the architects of settler colonialism uh, have. And so, what you see then in the southeast is native elders and and political leaders over the course of the 18th and early 19th century. Um, really having to grapple with all of these, these sort of multiple forms of violence, whether it be physical or psychological, the manipulation, the treachery, um, the sort of seeming inability of, of Europeans, particularly um, the English, um, to to stick to the agreements and the friendships and or the treaties that they have, have agreed to, um, so much so that by the time we get to the American Revolution uh, and the 1790s, um, we have elders throughout the Southeast who are quite clear about their distrust of Anglo-Americans in particular. I mean, they're leery of Europeans generally, but the Anglo-Americans who come to form the Republic of the United States, um, they 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 articulate a deep suspicion about the motives. Uh, of many of these people. Uh, to give you one example, I mean, the the Chickasaw elder who's known to the Americans as wolf's friend um, refers to the Americans as rattlesnakes. Um, they're like rattlesnakes, he says, um, who caress the squirrel in order to devour uh, that squirrel. Um, so that that sort of gives you a sense of Uh, the type of image that Native Southerners were developing of of white Americans by the time that the American Republic came into existence, is that these are people who, um, as a result of their history and their contemporaneous actions during the Revolutionary period and into the early Republic, really cannot be trusted.
2: Uh Well, now you bring up uh, Americans, and I I was surprised to learn – by reading your book about Washington's Virginia forces being routed uh, and forces surrender on July 4th. I don't recall the the battle. Uh, you also talk about St. Clair's defeat, which is called the victory with no name. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us more about some of those colonial battles that took place.
1: Well, I mentioned those uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, that you mentioned Washington in the Ohio uh, on that muddy, rainy July 4th. Um, that sparked the Seven Years' War. Um, We don't really commemorate that uh, each 4th of July. Um, No, perhaps we should. Um, But, um, yeah, I mean, that's an example. That, in particular, is an example of the, um, the types of calculations that Native people had to make because there are people, there are Native warriors on both sides of that battle. They form alliances with either the Virginians or the French, uh and they're making calculations themselves. You know, they're they're seeing these Europeans as as players who can advance uh their own particular uh objectives in 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 foreign or diplomatic policy uh and trying to secure their hunting grounds and their and their and their homelands. And a lot of these tensions that emerge and that lead to these unlikely of alliances um, are the products of long-standing um, debates, disagreements, and in some cases, uh, ongoing warfare among Native polities throughout the Southeast and up into the Ohio and, and Illinois valleys. Um, so, as I say, um, you know, Native people are not passive in all of this. Um, there is a larger imperial uh, story that's going on. And those European players are trying to form alliances to advance their own particular imperial colonial objectives. But at the same time, my point here is that we often lose sight of the fact that native people are also making their own calculations to try and advance their own particular military and diplomatic objectives. Um, the other point I think that's worth taking out of this, and this refers to things like, you know, the, the victory with no names in 1791, uh, or the, the longstanding Chickamauga War of Resistance, uh, that lasts into the early republic. Chickamauga Cherokee warriors who are determined to defend their, their Cherokee homelands, uh, and take the fight, um, uh, to Anglo settlers all the way up into the, the Cumberland and Kentucky, uh, which is traditional Cherokee hunting grounds. Um, that's, that this is, this is native land. Um, this is native soil. Um, it's Indian country and it very much remains so well into the 19th century. Uh, in fact, it takes the removal, uh, crises of, of the early 19th century that sort of culminate in, in that, that tragic era of removal, uh, in the 1820s that, that last into the early 1840s uh for the native south to sort of um lose the a legitimate claim to saying this is indian country although i would make the case that you know um settler colonialism in the southeast um is 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 sort of able to happen it's able to build a prosperous social economic society uh, only because Native people in the southeast uh, had had laid it out for them, there was a template there already for for European Americans, um, and that was the product of of Native ingenuity and innovation and and frankly hard work. Uh-huh.
2: So once the United States became sovereign itself, uh, they they created a policy called expansion with honor. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was that policy and how did it actually play out?
1: Well, everything Americans have wanted to do uh, for much of their Republican history, they'd like to see some sort of honorable aspect associated with it. And we're sort of in a cynical age now where we can see quite clearly that uh, those notions of of honor or freedom or liberty, um, whatever the words are that you want to use, are uh, in many cases uh, subterfuges for um, other sometimes nefarious motives um, in this case, I think we can rightly apply that skepticism uh, at the same time that we need to appreciate the world view that uh, you know people like uh Henry Knox and George Washington brought to um, um, devising uh this this policy of expansion with honor um is that you know they recognized that what needed to occur uh was a policy that would engender peace uh among backcountry settlers with uh native communities uh needed to be put in place otherwise um the very republic itself might dissolve into fits of uh violence and bloodshed. So Expansion with honor revolved around the principle of of trying to integrate native communities uh, into the emerging capitalist order that uh, the United States um, viewed as 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 really a sort of platform or one of the pillars uh, for freedom. And so the the practical reality of this meant that what would happen is the federal government would. Uh, establish forts or factories, as they were known. And these would provide military protection for both uh, these backcountry settlers, and they would also provide protection for uh, Native communities who were located near these these forts or factories. Uh, At the same time, they would become the conduits to um, ensure that Native communities um, began to adopt uh, the type of economic practices uh, that uh, were the hallmarks of a civilized um, Eurocentric society that, that the American Republic was. Um, so this expansion with honor then was, was conceived as a policy to sort of gently assimilate Native people into American society through, through economics. One of, the, one of the important things to note about this is the importance of debt uh, to this system. Um, by extending credits uh, to native communities uh, to participate in this, um, this economic system, what ultimately happens, and, and we see this even before the system is put in place. In fact, it's one of the reasons that we have outbreaks of violence uh, in the early uh, 18th century, for example, the, the Yamasee War. Um, but in the early republic. Extending credit to Native communities was a way of indebting those communities or having, them, having those communities become indebted uh, to American creditor, creditors. And the only viable way that many of them ultimately had to settle their debts uh, was to um, de- part with land, uh, to sign agreements that um, would cede uh, X thousand acres of, of land uh, in settlement of, of debts. Um, this is something that thomas jefferson for example believed was um really ideally suited to to ratcheting up pressure on native people and to, to pressuring them <clears throat> to excuse me to migrate uh west of the
2: mississippi uh-huh. so th- that that sort of brought in a period of of removal uh what was this period of removal and how did it work
1: well, one of the things to note about removal is that it does overlap with this earlier period of expansion with honor. I mean, there's no sort of seamless, you have one policy and then you move to the other. Um, there are always these vying factions um, within American politics and American uh, society more generally who are like, well, OK, we'll adopt this and see how it goes. Um, and if it doesn't deliver the results that we're looking for, then we'll transition to something, try something else, basically. Um, now, while expansion with honor is going on, particularly among those in the upper South and and deep South, you have um, settler white settler populations, particularly those with an interest in expanding uh, slavery and the slave economy westward, um, beginning to to really increase to ratchet up their calls uh, for Indian removal, and they're placing growing pressure. Um, not only on their federal representatives, um, but also their state and local representatives to, who enact policies and to engage in, in political practices that would increase the pressure on, uh, native communities, um, to, to be relocated from their, from their southeastern homelands. And so this is a, this is a process. That begins, uh, contrary to popular understanding, long before Andrew Jackson entered the White House. Um, this is a process and a practice that's being talked about among Americans, Anglo Americans, European Americans, um, really from the beginning of the Republic. Um, Thomas Jefferson gives voice to this idea in the first decade uh, of the 19th century. Um, he even implores uh, Cherokee chiefs, um, from the, uh, overhill Cherokee communities, uh, to relocate, uh, west of the Mississippi. Um, and so there is this sort of growing sense that, um, any effort to incorporate native people, uh, into, uh, American economic structures and social and political structures, is doomed for failure because they're simply they don't have the racial capacity uh to to integrate into those into those systems and live uh to live as civilized uh americans right and i think that's an important point because what we're seeing is this real hardening of of racial attitudes uh towards both native and african americans uh over the course of the early republic and the articulation of those hardened uh, uh, racial sentiments uh, combines then with sort of um, the economic and political motivations that people have that ultimately produce this perfect storm um, that leads to this groundswell of uh, opinion that it's simply a waste of of, uh, treasure and uh, time to try and assimilate or civilize Native people. We just need to push them beyond the boundaries uh, of the United States, take their land and use that land for civilized productive purposes uh, vis-a-vis plantation slavery in the Southeast.
2: So what happened during the post removal decades uh, for Native Southerners?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing to note about the post-removal decade is just how traumatic the actual removal decade was. And it was deeply traumatic. Um, You had all sorts of schisms and and social and political factions that develop um, around uh, the best strategy to use, (coughs) pardon me, the best strategy to use to try and combat the pressure uh, that uh, the American government and American settlers were placing uh, on native communities in the southeast to to, to relocate to give up their their um, homelands, um, and you know you uh, that's this is a vibrant debate that's going on during the removal era. Um, you know, women are continuing. I mean, these are traditional matrilineal societies throughout the southeast, and women are continuing to have their voices heard in these debates, and they're pushing men who are elected into these newly centralized native governments in the eighteen twenties um, to articulate a position in which they remain true to this understanding of their attachment to 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 this particular soil, to these natural ecologies, um, to the political state that they've constructed uh in the southeast. Um, and so these these are these debates swirl and continue and I outline these in, in fairly uh, extensive detail in the book um what ultimately occurs during the removal process is uh really quite horrendous in many cases i mean the conditions on both the overland and riverine routes westward are characterized um by immense suffering um Sickness, um, malnutrition, and dehydration sets in. Uh, disease becomes uh, quite common and um, can cut a swath through um, many of these um, uh, communities who are who are heading out to Indian territory quite quickly. And it's very devastating. Um, it is particularly devastating to. Uh, older people and young people who are, m- are most susceptible um to to death and disease um on the trail west um it, to give you some numbers i mean um claudio sant the historian claudio sant estimates that between 70 and 100,000 native people from throughout eastern uh the eastern united states uh were forcibly relocated During the decades between the 1820s and the early 1840s, around 1842-43, is often considered by some scholars to be the end of the removal period, um, with the removal of of groups like the Miami. Um, So this is, you know, this is quite a thorough process. This is a deep commitment on the part of the American state to eradicating Native people from uh, their eastern homelands, um, and and what remains um, of those homelands are taken up by in this in the southeast, in particular, uh, by those with an interest in, in slave plantations. Um, but there are also native people who do remain. Native Southerners do remain in the southeast. Not all of them are, are relocated to Indian Territory. And in many cases, those communities are small. We're talking communities of between a couple hundred to maybe 11 or 1200. Um, The Eastern band of Cherokee today are descended by people or descended from people, I should say, who remained in in North Carolina. Um, And their numbers was around the 1000 mark, a little bit more, a little bit less, depending on when we're talking about. And, those people to remain in the Southeast had to make um, what must have been quite uh, profound sacrifices, at least on paper, uh, because what the, the respective states that they found themselves in required them to do was to basically um, relinquish their identities, as their legal identities at least, as, as Cherokee or Creek or Chickasaw or Choctaw people and uh, become citizens of their respective states um and this was you know this so this was the sort of gateway to enabling um some native people to remain in the southeast now you know that's that's a legal requirement on the part of the states what we find is a lot of people uh kept their traditions their stories and their language uh very much alive um they kept it alive within their communities and they tried to keep it out of um, the site of of uh, euro americans who who tended to be uh, hostile and in some cases in the case of of uh, congressmen uh, rather surprised as they moved through the eighteen forties and fifties to discover that there are still um, quote unquote Indians living in the south
2: uh, I'm glad you brought up the really the horrific nature of removal uh and uh, Of course, moving on from there, there are are boarding schools and the termination policies. But you also say in your book, uh, my, how the architects of removal and assimilation failed. Yeah. Why do you say that?
1: Well, if their goal was to relocate or remove, relocate with the hope of uh, ultimately stamping out of existence Native people, um, then they utterly failed in that, um, and what native people did is that they fell back on those traditions of storytelling of community uh, they remade kinship and kinship systems um, they and they basically kept their sense of indigeneity um, tribally based and then on a pan Indian level over the course of the nineteenth twentieth, and into now the 21st century um, they they continually rearticulated and renewed those uh those identities. There's many layers of of identity through storytelling, through institution building uh through travel, um the use of technology now to to maintain a sense of of virtual community um which has made it possible to be a, a diaspora um Cherokee or Choctaw and to remain connected um to the stories to the community um to the history um that that goes into defining um the the complexity of of human identity um particularly native identity in the united states um so on that le- on those levels uh the those in the nineteenth century those political architects of of removal and the effort to eliminate native people uh from the United States. And then those who came after them um, through the Dawes Act, through um, the Major Crimes Act of the 1880s uh, and, and beyond, through the termination policies uh, of the, the 1950s, um, they all failed uh, to accomplish the elimination of Native people. Uh, from North America, from the Americas, more generally, because native people continue first of all they 're still here and they continue to articulate and remake uh their communities and their identities, and they continue to retell their stories um and that's that's that that I think is something that uh we should all really sort of treasure and hold dear. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I'd really like to express my gratitude uh, for what you've done with this book and just creating an, an understanding and some context of, and, and really a full picture of history of the not just the Native South, but it, I think it creates a context for what happened throughout um, the United States and uh, the Western Hemisphere. Uh, but now as as one American society, where do you think we go from here?
1: Oh, that's a very good question. I mean, I could take the easy uh, way out of this and say I'm a historian, I only deal with the past. (laughs) Um, But um, I mean, I think that's, that's, um, I mean, first of all, who knows? Um, I'm only, I'd only be speculating. Um, But I do think, I mean, there are struggles that continue into the present and will continue into the future that revolve around issues of of indigenous sovereignty, um, the continual attacks on uh, indigenous sovereignty, particularly um, in the current climate and uh, the current um, uh, Trump administration and its hostility towards um, uh, native uh, tribal sovereignty uh, and and those those struggles are intimately tied to both very real material and existential um crises that are related to global warming and the the sort of human induced climate change that is that is impacting um all of us but is uh, native people find themselves really at the vanguard of of feeling the effects of um uh right things like rising sea levels um extended droughts um flooding in other cases um, so these, you know, again, these are all tied to, and these go back to types of stories that Native people tell about themselves, their communities, and how those stories um, help them sort of knit together uh, their, their particular kinship communities and their understanding of their their kinship relationship with the environment. Um, uh, global warming is, 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 is tied to that. And so environmentalism is very much a part of this sort of n- newer wave of, of um, uh, Indian politics and sovereignty, very much at the forefront of it. Um, and I suspect that will be the case going, going ahead over the next generation.
2: So what are you working on now?
1: Uh, at the moment I'm, uh, working on a book, uh, it's tentatively titled Rediscovering Two Spirits. Um, it's the story of, um, uh, two-spirit people or people who, um, embody both male and female, uh, spirits, um, and characteristics. Um, it's, um, it's a big book that will, will cover, um, uh, about a millennium's worth of, um, uh, history and storytelling uh, up into the present and, and very much tapping into uh contemporary two spirit and, and native uh, LGBTQ uh stories to to really let um their voices uh echo off the pages of the book that I'm that I'm writing at the moment.
2: Well that sounds very interesting and important as well. Uh where can readers uh get your book, Native Southerners?
1: Uh, Native Southerners uh, is available from the University of Oklahoma Press. Uh, It's available on Amazon and from Barnes & Noble, Uh, and your local bookstore uh, can also uh, order a copy and you can save on postage.
2: Great. Well, my guest today has been Dr. Gregory D. Smithers, author of the book, Native Southerners, Indigenous History from Origins to Removal. Greg, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Colin. It's been a pleasure.